Good evening, lads and laddies. Shit. Good evening, lasses. Good evening, lads and lassies. You're listening to the Rish Outcast once again. I wish I had something better for you. But oh well, here's Rish Outcast. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Yes, this is Rish Outfield. This is the Rish Outcast, and we are presenting the second half of Varkolak. Varkolak, what is that? That sounds like a noise I... Varkolak. (laughs) That sounds like a noise I once made Anne Bancroft make in the heat of passion. Who? And thank never mind. Uh yeah, uh Varkalak is um my Western horror story, which this is the second half of. If you haven't heard the first, I'm sure it's still available. You know, I, I had an episode Ah, uh, here we go. I had an episode where uh, for some reason the feed dropped it. Part two, I think it was Stormy Weather. Part two of Stormy Weather before part one. And somebody emailed me and said, uh, where's part one? Uh, yeah. And I, it was, it was inexplicable. I don't know how these things work. I'm not computer savvy or anything savvy. Well, that too. Uh, I'm not computer savvy enough to know why things work and things don't work sometimes. I'm just uh, doing the best I can. Yes, it's quite pitiful sounded like there was a bit of sympathy in your voice there. No, none at all. Okay, well, I will continue with Varkolak, and uh, then, uh, will you still, will you still be here when I, uh, when we get to the end of the story? Hell no. Just drop me off at the nearest pub, or cat house. All right. Well, wait, wait, well, do you have anything to say about the story then, if you're going to be leaving? Several curse words about the story. Yes. Okay. Anything constructive? Yes, you should look into another line of work. Well, that, that is constructive. Uh, where were you 25 years ago? Why don't you ask your mother where I was? 20- okay, okay. Jeez. Okay, well, I guess we'll continue the story. One thing, lad. Are you really calling it v- Varnit? Var. Varkalak. Yes. It seems like that title has the same effect as a beefy fart in a lift in an office building. You don't like the title? No, I can't imagine anyone would like the title. Okay, well, you know, that's probably a valid point. I mean, it's always ever been called that. I I started with a, a quote from a sting song called Beneath a Desert Moon. And I, uh, think in the back of my mind, I thought, well, that could be an alternate title. You know, that, that's, that's a more palatable title. The Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring is a more palatable title, boy. Uh, weren't you supposed to be in that? Oh, so that's how you're going to be. I insult your story, so you insult my business acumen. I guess that's what I was doing. You know, it's fine. You can insult the story if you want. 
maybe Beneath the Desert Moon would be a better title, a preferable title. Uh, if you have a suggestion about the title or a, a thought one way or another, feel free to leave a comment, let me know. You know, you can contact me on Facebook. Yeah, sometimes I'm aware that there are titles that don't, that are problematic. This is probably chief among those. So anyhow, thank you uh, for joining me, Sir Fake Sean Connery, and uh, thank you for joining me, listener. We will continue with the second half of Varkolak. Varkolak. Those were long days for me. It's stupid, but I couldn't help but blame myself. I imagined detailed scenarios where we both sat, Thomas and me, back to back, at the edge of his pasture, whispering to ourselves about what we thought the animal was, and seeing it moving toward him. I would raise my gun and hit it right between the eyes. Another version had me only wounding the bear, and Thomas got in the killing shot. It was the least I could imagine for my friend. Life on the ranch had to continue. Feeding, watering, planting, maintaining, trying to go on. My mother was even more protective of me than she had been before, rarely letting me go off on my own during the day, let alone at night. The girls weren't even allowed that much freedom. Ma talked about not even letting the family go to church, since it might be putting us all in harm's way. But maybe the truth was, she didn't feel like going to church right then. And after a few days, she calmed down a little, and we could go where we pleased, at least while the sun was up. I'd often go to Thomas's graveside and mill around, gathering rocks to place atop it in lieu of a headstone. Mr. Porter must not have liked that, because I came by one afternoon and discovered the area disturbed, the ground turned over, and the rocks scattered. I figured that Thomas's father was ordering a real tombstone from town, and wanted only that to mark the site. I don't know if I should go on and on about the loneliness of those days, of how much I missed my friend, of how angry and confused I was. Needless to say, I was familiar with death. Everyone was in those days having lost my big sister. But this was different. It was violent and unexpected, and we hadn't caught the beast that did it. A few days later, we had a visitor. It was Annalee, the pretty woodpecker, knocking at our door. My mother recognized her immediately and asked why she was back. The girl looked toward me and my sister's, and took Ma aside for some private words. My mother said a word or two, listened, and then I heard her say, Oh, you're going to want to go next door and talk to Tom Porter. She nodded and did so. Immediately, my sisters ran up and asked what the girl wanted. Thanks to them, I was able to feign indifference. She asked, if there had been any animal attacks here or nearby. Apparently, her family had encountered a wild animal on their journey, and the girl was trying to warn people. 
She said that another farm a mile west of us had lost some sheep to the animal. Hungry, vicious thing it must have been to kill that much. Or maybe it was just something that liked the taste of blood, the causing it to flow. There were people like that. Though in my experience, not a great many of that type. Thank the Lord. The next time I saw Annalee, she and Luke Porter had been reacquainted, and they seemed to hit it off. I didn't get to talk to her much myself, as she spent most of her time with Luke and Mr. Porter, but her family was familiar with the creature. She had a funny foreign word for it. In her country, these creatures were rare, but prowled the countryside, hiding most of the time until the full moon, when they would descend the hills and hunt for livestock. Or children. Annalise said that travelers feared the Varkalak. That was the word. And even tried to stay indoors on full moon nights. What do they look like? I asked her. They're looking like big wolf, but with man's face, Annalise told me. Many of my people saying they are the devils. But according to the girl, they could be killed. Silver blades or arrows or bullets made from silver. Even silver-covered cartridges. But the monster is smart, Annalee said. It will return back until it is killed. She and Luke spent all his free time together, and often he'd speak for her. She seemed set on teaching him a few words in her language. I wished she'd teach me some, too as well as hold my hand and put her mouth on my mouth. I felt in the wrong about that. But mostly, I just wished Thomas was around to talk to about it. Annalee went into the big town upriver, and Luke said they were going to have the blacksmith there forge some bullets to kill the Varkalak. My father was skeptical. He wanted to know why we were believing this strange foreign girl and wondered if she wasn't just after our silver. But Luke was convinced, and had convinced his father by telling him things she hadn't told us. At one point, I decided I'd ask her a couple of questions, and depending on her answer, I'd either side with my father, or I would buy into her tale. Luke was out horseback riding with her, and I waited for them to come back. Instead of returning the horses to the pasture, they tied them to a tree and walked to a meadow. It took me a few minutes to catch up to them, and when I did, Annalise's dress had already come off. I was fascinated by what I saw there, but Luke caught me looking, and she covered herself right quick. I thought he'd be mad, but Luke Porter laughed instead. What are you doing out here, kid? I... I, I couldn't ask my questions now. I was too red and embarrassed, feeling guilty at my being caught. I also wished I'd been more stealthy, so I could have seen what they were up to. I could imagine Thomas by my side, taking in the sight, a big grin on his face. And to be honest, the first thing I thought when I saw her bare flesh was that I couldn't wait to tell Thomas about it. Annalee smiled at me and said, "'Do not be shaming.' Luke and I are lovers. 
trying to be anyway, Luke said and grinned. He looked just like his brother when he did it, and I found renewed resolve to ask my questions. Annalee, I need to know something. Luke had a snappy comeback for me, but the girl stopped him. Yes? What is your questions? Why did you come back? Where is your family? My family is gone on to Denver. They are still going west as before. Why not you? Because of Luke? She looked at Luke beside her, and I saw real love there. Good for him. She was beautiful. But she shook her head. I knew of the Varkolak. It is from my country. They shared another glance, and then she went on. I had to warning people, especially Luke's family. She now looked down at her feet, beginning to sniffle. I should be warning people before. Luke sighed. She feels responsible, kid. She knew about her, the monster all along, but their people are forbidden to talk to outsiders. I had seen religious sorts come through who had strange private ways, so I understood. So you're helping us? Because of Thomas? She looked up and there were tears in those huge brown eyes. She got on her knees so she could look me in the face. I thought it would be great if she'd kiss me like she did Luke, but she was just trying to beg my forgiveness for some reason. I'm, I'm so sorry about your friend. Luke tells me you are also like brothers. My cheeks began to turn red again, but this time from the desire to cry rather than embarrassment. Yeah. My people know the Varkolak is bad, a bad thing. But we say nothing, do nothing. I try to help so no more Thomas dies. I hope you can give me forgivingness. Well, that was reason enough. I could tell these two weren't telling me the whole story. Probably for the same reason they wouldn't let me see Thomas's body. But her tears convinced me. So I believed. I had a silver ring that I'd been considering giving their cause, and I produced it. It had been my big sister's, and they'd have buried her with it, so I'd slipped it away when I paid my respects, somehow persuading myself that it was so I'd have something to remember her by. Make a bullet for me, I said. Yes, we do many, she said. Thanks, Luke said, and must my hair. Now leave us alone so I can finish what you interrupted. I laughed and agreed, as long as he told me all about it. Which, come to think of it, he never did. It was the night before the full moon, and, according to Annalee, who was living with the porters, the return of the monster. I had been building up the courage to ask my mother, nay, demand of my mother, that I be one to go hunting for the thing that killed my friend. By that time, I knew a lot more about what we were dealing with. 
when Annalee and Luke returned from town with the silver-coated cartridges, they paid me a visit in the clearing where we were thinking of putting up a chicken coop. There was a cool wind, and, and Annalee's cheeks were flushed, and her woodpecker nose was red. Amazingly, that made her somehow prettier. She held the few bullets my contribution had helped create, and Luke asked what they should do with them. "'Give them to me,' I said. "'I aim to be right there with you, hunting the Vark Lake.' "'Varkolak,' Annalee corrected, then looked over her shoulder as if she'd said a dirty word. "'I do not think you should going out for hunting, Willie,' she said. It was the first time she'd said my name, but the name bothered me because it sounded like a little kid's name, the way she said it. "'I'm going to help no matter what,' I announced. Luke shook his head. She's right, kid. If you were out there... Hey, I got a hell of a lot more reason to help out than she does, I said, losing my temper. I kicked a dirt clod and the dust blew away on the wind. It wasn't like her friend got killed, or even her cows. Annalee and Luke shared a look, and something passed between them. The girl put her hand on my shoulder and squeezed, instantly calming me. I have to tell you this, but you have to not tell anyone else. I said nothing. My brother, Orchek, you remember? He, he is the one. She paused, waiting for understanding to dawn on my face. He, he is the Varkulak she said when it didn't. I continued to say nothing, but this time due to confusion. I wanted to ask her how, how it was possible, how she knew, how this could have happened. My brother is born on 24 December, and he is slow and strange. She reached back for Luke's hand, and he took it. Many times he is more animal than boy, was more. Our mother was putting him in a box of iron. A crate, Luke said quietly. And I think this was for to punish Orchek for his bad acting, or for bad things my mother imagines for him to do. But later, when I am older, I know that it is only on nights with the moon fully round that she does this to him. And for a while, a man come with medicine or something. He give it to my grandfather for to give to Orchek. Not medicine. Nectar is the word. My parents giving him nectar from a dark bottle, and Orchek will go to sleep for three or four days. But the nectar is gone when we was moving through Miss Aury. I looked away from her, processing what she was telling me. I could see my father across the road, where he'd been chopping wood to start work on the coop. He'd noticed us talking, and me not working and waved his hand at me. Annalee saw this and finished talking. I ought to know the look in Orchek's eyes when he is looking at your cows, and not to say something. But I did not. Maybe Thomas is not dead if I do this. Tears filled her lovely big eyes, and I realized that we had something in common. I had blamed myself too, and I saw it on her face. You're helping us hunt your brother 
Caleb? It is best. He is not my brother when he is the Varkulak. He is not a man any the more. If I was a monster like that, I'd want to die too, Luke said. I thought about it and couldn't decide how I'd feel. Knowing I had killed Thomas, that I would probably kill someone else, I could see how being dead was the better option. Orchek will to kill you or your sisters if he can. He will to kill me too, not remembering I am his sister. It is best that he die. Well, as a twelve-year-old boy, that made perfect sense to me. Hell, as an old man, it still does. The next day, Mr. Porter suggested we pair up and that everyone have a lantern. But my father thought, and Luke agreed, that a lantern would only make the hunters night blind, and perhaps targets as well. The moon would be full, though it was a cloudy afternoon, and that would have to provide enough light for all of us. My father had gone into town and asked for help. Several men said they'd gladly join him, but the next night they must have had other pressing matters to attend to, because only three men came to join us on the hunt, and two of them were our neighbors, the Timmocks, who had lost animals the night before we had. And that night... I went out with my father. He had brought back three men from town, including the saloon owner, who I always understood didn't like my father. Later I found out that the hunters had promised a big celebration at the saloon when the wolf was killed, so I guess it's all logical. Regardless of the extra help, I had to hear, don't get in the way, and this is no place for a kid, practically all night long. I don't know how my pa convinced my mother to let me go. They were arguing when I went over to the porters, long before sundown, to get Annalie, and were arguing when I got back. Annalie was not invited to go on the hunt either, and had asked my mother if she could stay at our house with the girls. Ma didn't seem to approve of her much, but my sisters had a hundred questions for her about her language and jewelry and dresses and her old country and traditions and what not. Ma agreed Annalie could stay with her. No need for her to wait in the porter's house alone. And still seemed sure that I was staying too. But as the day turned into night, my father told me to get my jacket on and asked about my special bullets. That's another thing, the whole deal with the silver bullets. I don't know why exactly everyone believed Annalie about them, about the creature we were pursuing, and that it would come back when she said it would. I know why I believed it, but I was a kid, and it don't make sense that the adults would believe so willingly. But those were different times, and they all saw more than I did. And I suppose Annalie might have told the man more than she told me, stuff she thought I ought not to hear. I don't know exactly. It never occurred to me to ask them about it but I did want to know how my mother had been convinced to let me go on the hunt. As we went out into the dark, after Ma had hugged me tight and told me to stay next to my father the whole night, something I had every intention of doing at the time, I asked him what he had said. 
Nothing much, he lied. I reminded her of your big sister and how she blamed herself when she died. Told her that's how you felt about little Thomas. How you'd probably not forgive yourself, or me and her, if you couldn't go out and help stop that wolf tonight. But honestly, I'd never blamed them, not even my ma for keeping me indoors that night. I blamed myself, sure enough, but I'd pretty much expected to be kept in again, no matter how much I bawled and pestered. I thanked my father for whatever he'd said, and he grunted in response. I loved him for it anyway. Just like the night Thomas was killed, we split into groups. Luke and Mr. Porter roamed the far fence of their property, where Thomas had died. Mr. Shaney and Jim Barings, who owned all the land west of ours, took the fence at the end of our property. My father and I roamed the northern fence of our land, while the Timmick brothers did the same with the Porters. It was a cloudy night, with only brief glimpses of bright moonlight, and I wondered if maybe we should have brought a lantern after all. It was cool, bordering on cold, and I was glad for my jacket. But as midnight crept closer, I considered suggesting we make a fire. Shh, my father told me, and I went silent. There were crickets chirping, an owl somewhere hooting, the occasional cow or horse or bird or man noise, but there were no wolf howls at all and it occurred to me that there weren't any coyotes baying or yipping tonight. I mentioned it to Pa. Yeah, he said. I noticed that. Maybe the big one has scared them all off. Or ate them, I suggested. Maybe, he said. But there's no meat on a coyote. Not much of a meal. I wondered how much meat there was on a twelve-year-old boy, but stayed quiet instead of asking. I had to relieve myself. I heard a sound about an hour later, and imagined the monster, a huge, black, feral wolf with a human's eyes, creeping up behind me, somehow inside the pasture with us, its mouth opening as it sprang. I started, and my father spun around, pointing his rifle right at me. But it had been a cow apparently walking out our way to investigate us. It had made a sound and brought me out of my semi-doze. "'You can sleep in your bed,' Pa muttered, disgust written in his posture. "'Sorry,' I said, and stood straighter, raising my own rifle higher in my arms. I tried to concentrate after the slip-up, to stay focused, to stay aware, and, of course, to stay awake.' Thinking about things worked for the most part, but what really kept me alert was dwelling on the image of the creature creeping up on my father and me. Every time the moonlight slipped through the clouds to shine down on the ground, I thought I saw a wolf there, behind the bushes, in the grass, at the foot of the fence. I was sweating, especially my hands where I held onto the rifle, but I wasn't even close to dozing anymore. It might have been a half hour later, it might have been an hour, when I heard a Hey! in the distance. It wasn't a shout, and I didn't recognize the voice, but a moment later, it became a shout. 
There it is! I spun around. My father was a little slower, both of us turning back toward the porters. Almost immediately after, there was a burst of fire from across the pasture, and then the sharp sound of a shotgun blast. My father began running in that direction, shouting, Stay here! But I was right behind. The man who shouted was Amos Timmick, I realized, and he was far away. It was too dark to see where he was or what he had fired at, but I could see the ground in front of me and the fence between the horse and cow pastures as we neared it. I saw two figures, the porters, running alongside it, and then they were gone. My father reached the fence first and stopped, waiting for me. I thought he was going to help me over the fence, but he just held out his rifle to me and, when I took it, climbed up and over. Then he reached for his weapon and whispered, I said to stay. Now stay here. I obeyed. For two or three seconds. I couldn't see anyone now. A horse snorted somewhere on the other side. Where? What? I heard Mr. Porter shout across the pasture. Come on, his son said. I pretended he'd been talking to me. I climbed over the fence, setting my rifle up and over first. When I was halfway over, straddling the wood, Luke shouted, There! I froze, looking toward the sounds. There were men there, and my father was running toward them. A rifle fired, and for a moment I was terrified with the thought that they were shooting at Pa. But it was aimed away, outside the porter's property. It was Mr. Porter firing. His son had a pistol, and it fired too, the sound very different in the night. I vaulted myself over the fence, snagging my pant leg on a nail or barbed wire, and tearing it. I kept from falling, made it to my feet, and began in the porter's direction. Then I stopped in my tracks, feeling stupid, and went back for my own rifle by the fence. Two more gunshots rang out. I turned and saw Mr. Porter fire a third time. Then I saw it. It was just a black form, and it was way too big to be a wolf. It might have been a calf or a full-grown cow, but it... It went down. It was a dark pile of arms and fur, neither of which a cow has. I ran toward it. As I neared the porter's, my father grabbed my arm and wrenched me back. Luke Porter shot again with his pistol. Stop that, Jim Baring said. It ain't moving no more. Pa, I grunted and pulled from him. Either I slipped from his grasp or he simply let me go, and I was able to run up alongside Jim and Mr. Shaney, who were inside the Porter's fence. Luke and his dad had gone over and were stepping toward the wolf both of their weapons still raised. Only it wasn't a wolf. There was a man lying in the dirt there, his chin planted into the ground. Where did it go? Jim Barings asked. It's right here, Mr. Porter called back. He was only feet away from the body now. No, Micah Timmick said. That can't be. 
Luke clicked back the hammer on his pistol, and his father said his name, the way my pa did mine when I was being fool-headed. But Luke didn't shrink away like I would have. No way that was a man, Timmick continued. I got it right in the side with my shotgun, and it didn't... I mean to say, the animal didn't... even... My father caught up to me. He was breathing heavy, even though he was a much stronger man than I ever was. The clouds parted again, giving us all a very clear view of the dead man on the ground. There was no sign of a wolf, or any other animal. Girl was right, Pa said. And Annalee had been. Her brother Ordenchek lay in plain view before us, his simple face unmistakable. He had blood on his cheek from one of the pistol shots, which had grazed his ear. I could see blood in the grass as well, but then it got dark again. Ain't what I saw, Micah Timmick said to nobody at all. Mr. Shaney began to recite something. Might have been the Lord's Prayer, but the words weren't right. Luke and his father knelt before the dead body, obscuring my view completely. I looked at my pa, who had lowered his rifle and his head. Then I looked past him to the hills and prairies beyond. Something was standing there, not even twenty yards distant. It was hunched over, neither a man nor an animal, almost still, watching us, watching me. It rocked on its haunches, and in the moonlight I caught a faint glimpse of light in its eyes. And then it turned all at once and began loping toward the hills. It was another one. It had to be. Jim Barings volunteered to go back and get something to wrap the body with. Amos Timmick went with him, claiming he had a ruined horse blanket they could use. His brother told him not to go, insisting the animal was still out there. And finally, Mr. Shaney said, Don't you understand? It's a wolf and a man, like Navajo Joe used to talk about. This guy wasn't no Indian. Micah Timmick protested. No, but Joe said that there were men who could walk around on four legs, sometimes a person and sometimes something else. Micah Timmick made some disparaging remarks about Indians and their stories, and all of us ignored him, especially me. I kept scanning the horizon, looking for the second creature, but it was long gone. I had never even fired my rifle and those special, practically priceless bullets I had made. I heard a new unfamiliar sound, and didn't realize what it was until I turned. Mr. Porter had begun to cry, staring at Ordchek's motionless form in the dirt. His son did his best to comfort him, and Pa told the porters to go on home, while the rest of us took the body back. Those two didn't argue, and started on home together. Willie, Pa said, maybe you should go with them. Pa, I... He didn't listen, 
Run back to the house and tell the women what happened. Then just stay there and wait for me. Here. And he handed me his big rifle. I didn't argue either. Just started back toward our fence again. It didn't take me long to get home, but I had an hour's worth of thoughts in that time. I wanted to tell somebody what I knew, but more than that, I wanted to kill it myself. Somehow, I knew how to do that. I went in the house, greeted by my family and Annalie, and simply said, Everybody's okay. They got it. Annalie nodded, and I didn't know if there was sorrow there or relief. She turned away, walking to the corner of the room for a bit of privacy. My mother crossed from the table to hug me, but I gave her Pa's rifle instead. I need to take a lantern, I said, but didn't answer any more of her questions. As shameful as it is to admit, I could already feel some of my conviction fading, and the safety of our house was beginning to overtake me. Be back soon, I said, and slipped out. I made it ten yards out the door, before I heard my father's voice. Where do you think you're going? He was just inside the fence, right across from the house. I considered lying, telling him I wanted a good look at the body, hence the lantern. That was a sharp enough lie anyone would have believed it. But how did I explain that I still had my rifle, or that I wasn't headed toward the dead man? So I told him, come what may. I saw something when we were across the way. What? Whatever it was, you'd best be... Pa climbed over the fence, then stopped. You're planning to shoot something. I think I saw another one, I said quickly. He breathed in through his teeth, and it made a whistling sound. You saw another one, or you think you did? I didn't answer, but scanned the distance for the dark shape, imagining that it might still be there, watching me even now. It was over there, I said at last, and began walking in that direction. Pa stayed where he was for a moment or two, then asked, You're sure? I felt a bit of pride at that, that he didn't immediately dismiss me because I was a boy, and he told me to wait a minute while he got his rifle again. He was gone a bit longer than a minute, and I stood out there alone, the nearby cows sleeping or paying me no mind. I could envision that growling sound coming once again, close there in the semi-darkness, the second creature creeping up on me before I even knew it was there. But all I heard was crickets, a night bird, and one of the neighbors telling somebody good night. Pa came back to my side, rifle in hand. She almost didn't let me go, he grumbled. I didn't have to ask who he was talking about. We started walking, Pa a step or two behind. I wasn't sure where I was going exactly, but I was going somewhere. Like I was being drawn to it, the way that sailors were drawn to the call of the sirens in that story Thomas used to tell. 
We moved together the length of our property, my father a few paces behind me, and he kept quiet, only urging me to hold that rifle right or I'll hold it for you, one time. I should have been terrified, afraid that the monster would lunge out at me in the dark, or that it was at least watching me approach, salivating at the thought of tasty human boy. But I wasn't. I was thinking about what I'd seen, and what direction it had been moving. And when we reached the stretch of flat plain beyond the border of our little ranch, I understood where it was going. I'd never heard of precognition or mind-reading in those days. Indeed, I'd never heard the word werewolf until that Henry Hull film was in the cinemas. But I had a strong intuition, an unshakable surety, as to where the second wolf was going. And it made sense. If Ordchak had been living nearby for an entire month, where was a better hiding place than the caves at the top of the hill, the ones where Thomas and I had imagined Indians and pirates and murderers lurking on so many forgotten, never-to-be-repeated afternoons? We climbed. The cave entrance was a black spot on the face of the hill, my father, amazingly, had not only never been in the caves, but he didn't even know they existed. Well, that's not so amazing, really. Boys notice things grown-ups miss all the time. How do you know it went in there? he asked quietly. I didn't know what to say, so I merely shrugged, stopped to remove a match to light the lantern. Damnation, son! What's got into your head? Pa growled. My mother notoriously abhorred profane language, and honestly, that was the strongest word I'd ever heard my pa utter. I set fire to the wick and closed the lantern's latch. It seemed ridiculously bright compared to the overcast moonlight we'd used to guide our way there, casting deep shadows before us as we ascended the ridge. At the edge of the cave, I swallowed. I don't know where all my courage came from leading up to it, but it seemed to have run out. There was only blackness within, like a hole in the earth dug so deep you'd not see the bottom at high noon. Is this where you and Thomas used to play? Pa asked. Not like this, I whispered. The longer I stood there, the less likely I was to go inside rather than retreat so I forced myself to take a step forward. Pa stayed right beside me. We entered the cave. Immediately, there was a smell that told us I was onto something. Rot, and lots of it. Nothing was visible inside, just rock walls and ceiling, and lots and lots of darkness. Bones were scattered about, mostly cow and coyote, some I couldn't identify. There were bits of cloth and the filthy remains of a blanket and a single shoe. As if this wasn't vindication enough, though, in my father's defense, he did go with me to the cave, even if he didn't believe my story. There came a sound from within the darkened tunnels, a scuffling, scrabbling sound, something large moving over rocks. 
my paw took a couple of steps in front of me, blocking the light from the lantern ahead. In that moment, I heard breathing in the shadows. It was the low, rasping inhales and exhales of a large animal, like a mean dog or a sick bull. I pert near turned and ran, despite the nearly miraculous bravery I'd managed up to then. Oh my, I heard my father whisper, and I stepped around him, the light extending to the cave's ledge slightly above us. And there it was, a hair-covered dark mass, hunched over and jammed into a crevasse like a giant rat. The wolf. But it looked more like a monkey to me, at least the drawings of monkeys I had seen. Only part wolf. Its head was rounded instead of long and pointed, covered in hair rather than the fur on its arms and chest. Its lower jaw gaped, revealing jagged, almost broken teeth, though its upper mouth was shaped like a man's. It was smaller than a person, but larger than a dog, or those monkeys from the book. I slowly placed the lantern on the ground between me and my paw, and took the rifle in both hands. The wolf's eyes were big and black and shiny, reflecting the lantern light like tiny fireplaces. They were intelligent and alive, not just watching us, but studying us, weighing us, measuring us. It shifted its legs, and I saw that it clutched something in its paw, hand, a string or cord, something that... Then the creature snarled, a hissing, wet sound, and leapt at my father. He made a tiny, ugh, noise, and then the cave was filled with a deafening roar as I pulled the trigger on my rifle. The wolf stopped in the air and dropped, flipping over and clawing just a foot away from where my father stood. Pa was backing away, fumbling with his rifle, and stumbled over the lantern where I'd set it. I heard the glass crack when it tipped over. The wolf growled, lifting up on its haunches. I raised my rifle again and fired, hitting the animal in the throat. It flipped over, clawing out with both its arms and legs now. I could hear its ragged breathing, what I now recognize as a punctured lung, and having heard cows make that sound, knew it was going to die. There was blood on the rock around it, starting to pool from the bullet holes, as black as tar in the low light. Then I saw the cord it had been holding, and recognized it. The wolf creature wheezed like a kicked dog, and made one more feeble attempt to get at my father, then fell onto its stomach, and lay still. My paw had righted himself, and the lantern, and was now pointing his rifle at the animal. But it did not stir again. All around the body, the fur seemed to burn up, disappearing bit by bit until bare flesh was visible. Its paws were definitely hands now, and small ones, pathetically small. I had known when I saw the necklace, but my father gasped when he recognized the body. Little, little Thomas, Pa whispered, his voice dry and 
almost elderly. Thomas was naked, the two entry wounds and one exit, bloody holes much smaller than I would have expected. Other than that, his body was unmarked, unscarred, complete. There was no sign of the mangling and missing areas from his attack the month before. What had killed him had healed him, too. A clattering sound startled me, and I realized I had dropped my rifle to the rocky ground. I thought to bend and pick it up, but I couldn't make myself move. I discovered that I was shaking, my hands, my legs. Pa ran over to me, just as my knees gave out. It's all right, son, my father said to me, his voice still as dry as kindling. He put his arms around me, and I tried to hug him back, but then he scooped me up and stood tall. He carried me softly and slowly to the entrance of the cave. Outside, the sky was bright. The clouds had parted a little, and the full moon lit the night as though dawn was just over the next ridge. My father carried me down the hill, onto the plains, and back to our land. By this time, all the men who had been out hunting were gone, and everyone had gone to sleep. I had gotten quite tired myself, and my shaking had entirely subsided. As we neared the homestead, Pa told me, Luke, me and you are going to get some rest. We had a long night. What do we say about... I began to ask, but couldn't say the name. Nothing, Pa said. He let me down and steadied me as I stood on my own two feet. In the morning, I'll go get our guns and get rid of... what might need to be got rid of. You think you can attend to the cows all right? I didn't know, but I said, Uh-huh. Pa put his hand on my shoulder. A big hand. A strong hand. A steady hand. There was only one wolf, son, and the porters saw to it. That's all they need to know, all anyone's got to know. But if... He cleared his throat. Let it be, son. We never need to tell anybody that there was a second one of those things, or who it was. That, especially. He leaned in close to me. I could feel the heat of his exertion radiating off his body. Don't you agree? I did. I wished I didn't know. Hadn't seen. I had killed it. But I didn't feel proud. I didn't know what I felt. Willie. I nodded, then said, Okay. In case he didn't see the nod. That's a good boy, my father said, and patted my back like I was a very little child again. I felt like one, too. While taking off my jacket and my boots, I could hardly see for the tears which just kept rushing out of my eyes. I couldn't breathe with the snot that clogged my nose. I didn't even know why I was crying, exactly. 
but I vaguely remember life being that way when I was a tiny little kid. And I was closer to it back then, so I didn't question. I got into my bed and sniffled and thought about Thomas and went to sleep. And now, that's all a long time ago. It's the 20th century, and everything's new and exciting. Everything except me, I guess. I'm an old man now, and Pa's been gone 20 years. That means Thomas has been gone more than 50. Though it doesn't seem like it could be so. I wonder about him. What Thomas Porter would make of this new world. The new music, new politics, and modern ideas. Radios and the cinema. Automobiles and cable cars. I wonder what my friend would have become if allowed to live his life out to be a white-haired old fool like me. Then again, on particularly lonely, quiet nights, with a new moon or a full one, I sometimes wonder what I would have become had I not fired that rifle when I did. Had I not told my father about what I'd seen, or gone there alone, as was my original plan. Had I not believed Annalise's story and got those two silver bullets made on the off chance that I'd be able to use them. I never did tell anyone about the werewolf. The second one, at least. Not my mother. Not my sisters. Not the woman who became my wife. As far as I know, my pa never told either. But I'm an old man now. So I suppose it's all right to tell you. You may think that this is all just a made-up story, or worse, that I believe it because the years have turned my mind into mush. And that's just as well. Some things are better not believed in. It wouldn't do to see Thomas's black, shiny eyes staring at you in the dark when you start drifting off to sleep. Heck, I wouldn't mind forgetting about that myself. The End Okay, well, that was it. That was the story. Uh, just like Into the Furnace, uh, a couple of years after this, the story came from me wondering if someone had ever done a werewolf story set in, you know, the Old West. A Western with a werewolf in it, probably, is how I should have phrased that. And I'm sure it has been done. Don't get me wrong. Everything has been done. A biblical epic set in modern-day Paris with a sea monster in it has been done. But I had not done it, and I, I, I was very new with the whole Western genre when I wrote this. This was, like I said, the second one that I had written after Birth of a Sidekick, and I thought that... I would try it. Um, I remember this one not taking a tremendously long amount of time. When I wrote this, I, I'd say this was 2008. When I wrote this, I was working... Wow, 
I, I, I honestly can't remember where I was working in 2008. Don't get old, folks. But I was going to say, you know, I had a, uh, what do you call where you have to answer phones and people have questions or complaints and you have to deal with that? You know what I mean? The phone thing, it's, it's tech support. I had a tech support job in 97. Um, I had a, a couple of them. I, I, there was one where I worked for, I think it was IBM. And that job, you were, they understood that it was a crap job. They said that when you first came in and said, so we don't mind if you're on your phone. We don't mind if you're on the internet. We don't mind if you bring a book or whatever, just as long as it doesn't interfere with your job. And there, I remember we had the barest amount of training, like three hours in the morning, and then they broke for lunch and they said, okay, in the afternoon, now you're gonna be taking calls. And a lot of people were like, what? what? I, already? And I remember somebody, because we all got trained in a group, but, but there was somebody that was just like, no, this is bullshit. It's like, I'm not going to be taking calls already. And they said, well, that's how, how it works. You know, you just jump into the deep end and you'll learn by doing. And the guy goes, uh-uh, I'm done. And he left. And, you know, everybody around us was just like, ooh, jeez, that guy. Ooh. But eventually we came to envy that guy. So I think that I brought a notebook or I had just like a, a file open where I was writing this story during that job. And that job didn't last very long. It was, uh, it was just not a good job, dude. They knew it. They knew that you would get yelled at every single day and that we had almost no training and all we were supposed to do is just like log the calls and describe what people were complaining about and then transfer them to the appropriate, you know, technician or section or whatever uh, who are people that we didn't know, that weren't on the same floor, maybe not even in our country, right? Oh, people were so furious when they'd explained everything that was going wrong and then you'd say, okay, well, let me connect you to somebody who uh, will be able to help you with that. And they'd be like, what am I been talking to you for? I, ah, you know, kind of thing. And you hear that three or four times in a week. And I don't know how long I lasted at that job. Not terribly long but I remember you know we were some big section they hired like 25 of us and by like the third week there were 11 or 12 of that group that were still there and I remember there was this really beautiful girl young girl and I want to say that her name was Katrina and she sat next to me for like the first week week and a half maybe it was even longer than that and that sort of made things bearable. I looked at this girl and I was just like, you know, that lady just yelled at me, but now look at you. Wow. And then one day Katrina was gone. She just had enough or she, like I said, they were aware that the job was not great and they would try and make it better by saying, you know, okay, we're going to get pizza for everybody on Friday or you get a bonus if, I don't remember what it was, you make it a month or something like that or you got a bonus if you were on time every day for a I want to say a month or a week or for a shift but it was off oh gosh people just unloaded on me and you know there was this helpless feeling 
you know, I, I had no way of dealing with people. I'm not great with people anyway. And gosh, how long the people had been on hold before I picked up, I have no idea. And then they yell at me when they find out I'm just going to put them on hold again. I don't know why I'm telling... Oh, because that's when I wrote Varkulak. Is I was sitting there and I, was, I would type it up and all that stuff. And nowadays I write things fast. Well, fast compared to me. <laughs> compared to a younger version of me with no gray hair. But in those days, things something like this, like Varkulak, would take months. Probably took me four or five, six months to write this. It depends on whether I stuck with this or set it aside and then came back to it later. So anyhow, I wrote this and I brought it over to Big's house in maybe it was early 2008 when we were still doing the story swap thing. And yeah, by the time we finished the reading of this story, it was late and he was tired and he didn't have anything to say. He's just like, yeah, it's 2.15. Thanks for coming over, man. That was it. So I never really got any feedback on this story. But one thing that I would do is I would make notes while Big was reading it. You know, if there were things that he stumbled over or things that I just didn't like the phrasing of or, you know, every once in a while he'd look up and say, oh, you misspelled there, that kind of thing. And I would make these notes and incorporate them in a rewrite. Uh, and that was 2008. And then I didn't look at this story again until 2017. One of my goals at the beginning of this year was to publish more things. And, you know, I haven't said it's not a great story yet. I think that's implicit, but I haven't said it. That can't enter into it. Does that make sense? I just have to publish things because if I could only publish things that were perfect, then I would release something every year. And that's great. But one short story a year, holy cow, dude, that's not even going to buy me ketchup. So what I've got to do is put out as much stuff as I can, and I, I should worry about the things that I can fix. Grammatic, syntax, errors uh, on newfound fame. I messed up one of the characters' names. I had to go back and redo all those parts. These are things that I can fix. And then if there are story problems, if there are logic problems, if there are dialogue problems, if there are pacing problems, then I, I really just, I need to focus on that for the next one. It's, a, it's something that Big says a lot. He's taken it to heart because Dean Wesley Smith said it. Just as soon as it's finished, you give it another pass, clean it up and put it out there and then go on to the next thing. Because his idea was you will succeed as a writer financially if you have a great deal of things that people can buy which are good enough versus having a few things that are excellent, that are great, that are as good as they can possibly be. You will do better with quantity rather than quality. And I'm paraphrasing, of course, but I just needed to take that to heart, especially during this publishing time of 2017. So, I hope that you liked Varkalak. It's a story, it's similar to the Ben Parks stories in that, you know, it's got a kid protagonist and 
set in the West. Although this story is, is set before Birth of a Sidekick. I think I decided Birth of a Sidekick, Journey of a Sidekick, sorry, a Sidekick's Journey are 1896 when those take place. And eventually we'll get to 1897, but right now that's where we're at. My dad was a huge fan of the Western genre. He just loved Westerns. The way that I love horror movies and this was a way of taking my dad's genre and taking my genre and, and trying to put them together. And maybe it's not entirely successful in combining the two, but yeah, I'm not sure that I will ever write just a Western that is wholly a Western. You know what I mean? There's always going to be other elements in it because I'm not familiar enough with the Western. I, I, I'm not passionate enough with the Western and the, the tropes, the, the baggage that comes with that. I just, I liked the idea of taking what is a modern invention, which is the werewolf. And, and I, I, I know what you're saying. Let me defend my statement. The werewolf as you and I know it, was invented by Kurt C. Odmack in 1941. You know, that stuff is invented by him, and of course he's never going to be recognized as the father of the werewolf in the same way that George Romero will never be recognized as the father of the zombie. But what we know about werewolves, what we believe about werewolves, was invented by him in the same way that what we know and believe about zombies was Romero's doing in 1968. So if a werewolf existed in 1888, 1886, I'm thinking it was 12 years before Birth of a Sidekick. So 1884, the idea of running into a modern, a Siodmak werewolf in that is, is interesting to me. It's kind of neat. I mean, technically, if we're trying to go by history, you know, there was the idea of the skinwalker, which was a Native American belief of, you know, somebody who could become a wolf. And, you know, I did a little bit of research into that it was a Navajo belief, but it was really sacred. It was something that like the holy men, the shaman, the medicine men knew about or believed or passed the stories on, but it was not talked about to outsiders. It was something personal and private and probably a lot of that folklore has been lost over this, the decades because it was, yeah, a personal, private thing. And so, yeah, in, in 1884, maybe there would be men, holy men or unholy men, who could become wolves or become as wolves. But that wasn't the kind of story that I wanted to tell. The European gypsy curse werewolf is what we're dealing with. And the kid, Ordchek, I think, 
that he was born on Christmas Eve or something like that. And yeah, just some crazy, stupid, and sorry, I don't mean stupid. Your beliefs are great. They're all true. But yes, part of the European beliefs was any baby who was born on Christmas Day or born on Christmas Eve had the potential to become a werewolf. How that makes any sense at all, I don't know. The Kurt Siodmak stuff is any man who is bitten by a werewolf and lives will become a werewolf himself. And then later in the sequels, Larry Talbot would be killed, but he would come back. Because once the, you've been infected with the werewolf gene or whatever, you're immortal, essentially, unless you're dispatched with silver bullets or... Well, I think that was the way that they always killed him. In Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, okay, he drops off of a cliff. But I'm thinking that technically that's outside the canon there. Uh, I don't know why. Maybe the fact that Abbott and Costello are in the movie. I, I don't know. We'll, we'll get a judge's decision on that one. So anyhow, how that's that's what happens is is that the boy's friend is bitten by the werewolf, is killed by the werewolf. He's buried, and because of the curse, his body knits itself together, and he becomes a werewolf himself when the full moon rises. And maybe I could have been clearer about that. I don't know. See, the thing is, I didn't want to tip my hand too much. But I also didn't want it to come out of nowhere that that's what happened. These are decisions that you have to make. How much will you spell out what's going on? How much will you explain? How much do you leave to the imagination? And all that stuff. And, and I'm still learning. I know that's crazy to say. I was talking to Big today about how many things you're supposed to balance and get right in everything that you write, you know, from the beginning that hooks the reader and the characters that come alive and they're not just you with breasts and suspense and a really solid ending and dialogue that feels naturalistic and yet is also snappy and romantic subplot that doesn't feel hackneyed twists and turns that the audience can't predict. You got to have all sorts of inclusivity and progressivism of, you know, having a, a United Colors of Benetton cast in your stories. So it's not just me with breasts again. It's or me without breasts is probably my temptation to write about setups and payoffs, themes, uh, likable characters. I, I've probably named a dozen things so far, and that's just the tip of the iceberg there's a hundred things that you're supposed to get in your novel or in your writing or whatever and I've been writing for all these years guys is it possible to nail every single one is it possible that every story is perfect and does all of these things that I was listing and I think the answer is no Okay, let me put an asterisk on that. It, it may be possible to do that, but it would take so long and so many revisions, and it's, okay, now I'm going to do a pass that's just about dialogue, and now I'm going to do a pass where we talk about the theme. You know, now I'm going to do a pass 
where the scenes that are suspenseful are scary, you know, are, are... I don't think that you can do that with every single project unless you're planning on living to be 150 years old. There are just certain things that maybe I want to hit in each project. And those are the things that I focus on. And even then, I'm going to fall short on a couple of them. But I focus on those one or two things. And that's that's it. And then I put it out. And then it's you can read it. And I hope that you enjoy it. I hope that I have honed my craft enough that you're like, yeah, oh, hey, that was another solid story by him. I can't wait to read another one. I, another thing with something like this, with the Western, is how historically accurate should it be? And I guess I touched on that already. But yeah, the descriptions of clothes and technology and the kinds of guns and animals and what people would know about and what Colorado would be like in the 1880s. All of that stuff is, well, it's something that you can focus on or you can choose not to. There are one or two little references in there that I did try and get correct, but there's probably a ton of things that aren't historically accurate. And to be honest, that was not my priority. It's still not my priority. Right now I'm writing a science fiction story and I've tried to world build a little bit and tried to come up with technical jargon names for things that they'd have in the future. So it's not just, you know, radio, intercom, telephone, and you can only do so much. And maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe somebody who's a real writer with a capital R and W, there's a W before the R, does all these things. They sit down and they come up with the world and the technology and how things work on a starship and it feels true. It feels like somebody has thought out the future technology. I read a Neil Stevenson book recently and it just felt scientifically right, you know, like like he had done all of his homework and anything that he told me I would just take as truth. Partly it's because the few things that I recognize as being scientifically sound made me assume that everything was scientifically sound. I feel like I've really, really gone off on a tangent. I, where is fake Sean Connery when I need him to tell me I'm talking about a science fiction project now instead of my stupid story? But I guess the point I was trying to make is that you can only do so much. And do I want the story I'm writing right now to be completely bogged down in science and how shifts would work on this starship and if it's feasible that a ship could get from one planet to another in 90 years. <laughs> That's not what the story is really about. In the same way that this story is not really about the Old West, it's just an opportunity to tell a werewolf story in a new location. By new, I mean old, but you know what I mean. Anyway, I shared it with you. I hope that you liked it and that you thought that the scary parts were scary or 
you at least liked all my voices that I did. Um, yeah, one thing on this that I realized early on, and I don't know if it, it, it's consistent, is that the narrator, the first person narrator, is an old man telling the story in like 1940, something like that. So I probably should have told the entire story in an old man's voice, but I didn't. I just did a gravelier version of my voice. And that was the decision that I made. And I, I, I stick by it. I, it could be a wrong decision, but it's the decision I made and I live with the consequences. <laughs> That's the funny thing about being a narrator as well is that there are a whole bunch of things that you should focus on, that you should try and get right. You know, no lip-smacking sounds. Cut out all the breaths. You know, make sure that you enunciate so all the words are understandable. Anyway, I'm just prattling on and on. I guess the point I'm trying to make there is you can't do every single one. Try and get the voices consistent even though you record the story over more than one sitting. How much do I attempt to sound like a woman when it's a female part? How much do I attempt to sound like a child when it's a child part? You know, those are decisions that you have to make. Maybe I'm making my job sound more complicated than it actually is. Uh, but at the same time, maybe you're thinking, wow, well, Rich really knows what he's doing. I, I would never have considered that all these factors go into an audiobook. In which case, well, feel free to buy more of them. Anyhow, thank you for listening to Varkalok. Thank you for listening to the Rich Outcast. If you are a Patreon donor, thank you for doing that. And I will leave you with... Beware the moon. Good night. The music in this episode was provided by Kevin McLeod, the podcaster's friend. His work can be found over at incompetech.com. This podcast, amazingly enough, comes attached to a Creative Commons non-commercial, no derivatives 3.0 license. It's free to listen to, copy, share, and delete, especially that last one. But you cannot sell it or make claims on it yourself. However, there is a Patreon fund set up for this show, wherein you can donate a dollar an episode and up to keep it going. Your Patreon pledge could very well save Rich Outfield. And who's going to come to save you, Junior?